Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we're going to continue our conversation on the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy V. When last we left our heroes, we were, as is often the case in Final Fantasy games, in trouble. In fact, we were in jail. We'd been thrown into the jail of Karnak, and my brother and I were judging the people of Karnak for being isolationists and people more interested in building walls than building bridges and unintellectually curious people that have thrown us in jail. And at this point, the Sid of Final Fantasy V has made an explosion not to get himself or us for that matter out of jail but we've made one big cell so i guess we're we're making a little (laughs) bit of progress in that realm so here are our four warriors of light galif ferris bartz and lena and sid in jail plotting to see what happens next so before we jump into what happens next i would like to briefly point out that the werewolf that came out of the meteor that we mentioned an episode or two ago uh, is not the first werewolf we've seen in this game. I forgot to mention, and to me this is a a really fun detail, that in the city of Walse, where the water crystal was, you can go down into the dungeons. And one of the characters in the dungeons is another werewolf, and his name is Lone Wolf. Lone Wolf asks you to let him out of jail, and you can. But you shouldn't, because if you do... You will find yourself going through various dungeons and finding chests that would have had a cool item in them, but the item is gone and there's just a note that says, Lone Wolf got here first, sorry suckers, or something along those lines. So it's That's just a, a minor character. Yeah. yeah, it's a minor detail, but the reason I like that is because Lone Wolf or a version of Lone Wolf also shows up in Final Fantasy VI, and he is also a character who is from another world in Final Fantasy VI. Presumably he's from the world of Espers, because he's the only werewolf you see other than other anthropomorphic wolves in the world of the Espers. Right. And in Final Fantasy V, he's from the other world. He's not from this world that we're currently in. So it's a fun detail. I wanted to make sure to point it out. There we go. Yeah, especially because we're going to see Lone Wolf again, and it would be cool to see him pop up and modern game randomly i wonder how many people would get it because he is such a side character but for those who remember him you're like there's a werewolf in this random game (laughs) there's lone wolf i know that guy all right so we're all in jail sid is explaining that it is that he's the one who designed the machines that amplify the energy of the crystals the amplified energy of the crystals is why uh the cities of this world are so are advancing so quickly. It's not unlike the role of, for example, Shinra in Final Fantasy VII, where where they have created machines to use the energy of the Earth or to use the cosmic paranormal energy uh, of, of the planet or surrounding the planet to their own ends, basically to make money. It's not that it doesn't help the people of the world, depending on where you live in the world, but it is definitely the people who are gaining from it, less so in Final Fantasy V, but definitely in Final Fantasy VII, the people who are gaining from it are the people who are already rich. Yeah, this is another one in the category of... We were talking just before we started recording about Final Fantasy V's legacy and 
is it as deep and interesting as some of the other games because it is a bit more whimsical it maybe doesn't take itself quite as seriously but upon replaying and reviewing this game like a lot of people i think who've gone back we've found deeper thematic elements some really interesting ideas and this is one of them that maybe is not as fleshed out as well as it would be in a game like six or seven like you mentioned where there's some really interesting and unique complications to the idea of the energy and the machines and 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 sucking out the life force of the planet where this is presented much like jumping ahead a little bit the main villain in this series is just clearly a bad thing we're using machines to suck out the energy of the crystals it's not good let's get rid of it so sid has realized his mistake he realizes the, his amplifying machines are making the crystals brittle. They need to shut it down, and that's why he was tossed in jail. I think we may have mentioned that last time. Uh, but he was tossed in jail because he wants to maintain the balance that the, that the crystals help to regulate in this world. And the Queen of Karnak is like, yeah, but I like my power. You're going to jail. All that said, once we've had this conversation with Sid, we're let out of jail by, I think, the Chancellor because Sid's expertise in crystals and amplifying machines is needed because it's become very apparent that the fire crystal is now breaking. So we make our way to the fire-powered ship, which is where we find the queen of Karnak in the engine room. And I, uh, I can't recall if she's possessed or she's being mind-controlled somehow not unlike our friends from Final Fantasy IV, and she becomes uh, this fire monster that we've got to defeat. So from the fire-powered ship, there's a tunnel that leads into the crystal room. We are joined there by the werewolf who, who was seen earlier coming out of the crystal, which is one of the reasons we were arrested. He addresses Golif like he knows him, uh, like Golif is perhaps some kind of a lord, and we're going to shut down the machine and everything's going to be fine. But another... Karnakian soldier shows up, also possessed, I'm pretty sure, turns the machine up to 11, and the crystal shatters. <laughs> yeah. This one goes to 11. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, the werewolf helps us escape. It costs him his life, and Karnak Castle explodes. The, the whole thing blows up. Karnak Castle Oops. is no more. Maybe we should have listened to the brilliant scientist when we had the chance before our planet melted or whatever. So the the only upside to all this is that now there are more shards of crystals and we get more superpowers. Every time. There's always a, a silver lining to the shattering of one of the four elemental crystals in this game. <laughs> we get superpowers. So before the castle explodes, you've got this timer dungeon where there's all these treasures... And if you want to get all the treasures, you got to be especially fast at defeating monsters because as the timer goes down, the, the castle is closer and closer to exploding. And if you don't make it out in time, and there is a boss that jumps out and stops you at the very very last step, if you don't make it out in time, you do lose. And in my most recent playthrough, I lost more than once trying to get all the treasures of Karnak Castle. I think that's the first time we've had a timer dungeon battle thing, too. Oh, interesting. And we haven't mentioned it. We'll talk a little more when we get specifically into the gameplay. But the most cited reason why this game was not immediately localized is that 
the game was too hard, that there were too many things that they thought apparently at the time that American gamers were going to find a bit unforgiving, which I do find interesting considering the history of regular Nintendo games that we had to play through the gauntlet of in our youth. Mega Man, my God, that game was hard. Where those, I think, are more tests of endurance and your ability to bounce back after failure this is more a test of your ability to plan things out ahead and strategize and do things before a battle happens and it might be just a bit more advanced in terms of the preparation necessary to do things like that and and i think this dungeon is a good example of why they may have thought that to be the case sid blames himself and on the one hand it is kind of his fault on the other hand, if we had listened to the scientist, anyway. It's, it's almost always that way with Sid, right? It's kind of sort of a little bit your fault, but maybe we should have been listening better. Right. Once he realized his mistake, we should have all realized the mistake. Anyway, the explosion of Karnak Castle also blew a hole in the wall that separated Karnak Castle from the Library of the Ancients. And again, like I don't want to just pile on to the people of Karnak, but walling yourself off from a library... Bad move. Come on. So we are able to get to the Library of the Ancients, where we're supposed to be able to do some studying and figuring out what to do next. The Library of Ancients is a fun dungeon. Uh, there are like moving bookcases and little secret passages, and you have to fight a bunch of books, which is interesting. Like A lot of these books are possessed. And then at the top of this library is a furnace run by Ifrit, specifically for burning possessed books. And I'm against burning books. Absolutely. I'm a high school librarian. I'm all about preserving bricks of paper marked with ink. But I guess if they're possessed and you need a god to help you get rid of the possessed books, I guess I get that. Kind of. It's a fun and interesting inversion of something we see in literature a lot, right? Because obviously people who write are going to be less inclined to enjoy the notion of burning books. Some 451 stuff going on here. But usually we see it as this bad thing, as, as well you should. Uh, like in the book Thief, I'm trying to think of other things. You, you know, you see burning of books is almost always a bad symbol. But to see it used in this way, it's a fun inversion that, as you said, if these are, if knowledge is power and that knowledge has been corrupted, then that's pretty corrupt power. And that's an interesting way to look at it. One of the other things I've learned uh, being a librarian is, you know, books fall apart. And books grow out of date. And sometimes it's time to, we call it weeding. Where you get rid of books that aren't really being used. And you buy new books that, that will get used. Because I've only got so much space, right? So there is a certain understanding that the brick of paper is only a brick of paper. It's the ideas inside that are, that are of interest. So if your book is falling apart, it's okay to get a new book. Or if it's possessed by the devil or whatever. Right, right. At that point, maybe it's time to find a non-possessed version of that book. Also interesting, I find this a little bit of a cousin to the possessed museum that we see in Final Fantasy VI. There are possessed books here. We've got possessed paintings in the next game. And so just kind of an interesting... Again, another inversion of we like art, we like knowledge, but we also recognize that sometimes those things can be used for corrupt purposes as well. It's called propaganda. Absolutely. So at the Library of the Ancients, we meet Mid. Mid is the grandson of Sid, as you do. 
They tell Mid that his grandfather has fallen into a depression because of his role in the shattering of the crystals, and Mid immediately goes to Karnak to snap Sid out of it. Like, come on, old man, we got stuff to do. And the sight of Mid and Sid interacting as grandfather and grandson triggers Gollop's memory of his granddaughter, Kryli. And it's the same girl that Siren pulled from his memory, but who he could not remember back in the uh, ship graveyard. And, and it triggers basically all his memories. So now he can tell our party of adventurers that he is from another world. And that 30 years ago, he and three other warriors were battling an evil warlock called X-Death, which is a heck of a name. So they, they were battling this warlock named X-Death, and they used the powers of the crystal on this world to seal him on this world. So they come from another world, they come to this world, bring X-Death here, they fight him, and they seal him on this world, and then they peace out. Which seems kind of like a dick move. <laughs> uh, just leaving somebody in eternal limbo. But his name is X-Death. Right. Well, old Eddie well, Izzard I, joke talking about how Americans... It's actually about the Death Star. So we've talked about Star Wars sure. and Final Fantasy's relationship. What does it do? It does death, buddy. <laughs> so I've got no problem with them sealing away X-Death. I've got a problem with them sealing him away in somebody else's backyard. <laughs> Someone else's problem now. And now... Now Gala suspects, in fact I think he knows at this point because he's seen various people possessed, that X-Death is trying to escape by shattering the crystals because it's the nexus of those crystals that's holding X-Death in his prison. So he's you know, encouraging the use of these amplification machines to shatter the crystals so he can be free. So Sid and Mid repair the fire-powered ship and give it to our Light Warriors so they can go find the Earth Crystal. But before... Before you go, there's a little side cave. And it's not really narratively important, but it's kind of important to you and me. And I'm going to say the name of the cave, and then I want to see if you can figure out why I think it's important to us. So it's called Jackhole Cave. J-A-C-H-O-L, which I'm pretty sure is pronounced Jackhole. <laughs> can you and think of a reason? it's because we're a bunch of jackholes. <laughs> see, that that's it. I don't think anybody else uses that word jackhole the way you use that word jackhole. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you use that word because when we were young and one of us was being a pain and then we would rile each other up, you would call me a jackhole all the time. And I'm pretty sure it's because you wanted to call me a jackass and you wanted to call me an asshole, but you didn't want to say the word ass. Well, you know, I've always been creative. <laughs> That is less important to Final Fantasy V and more important to us. That's a fun aside. It is funny, though. <laughs> Jackhole cave. All right. And that's one of the dungeons where if you let Lone Wolf loose, you can't get a particular item. Frickin' Lone Wolf. No Jack good hole. deed. <laughs> All right. Great. Look at the can uh, of worms you've opened up. Oh, God. Okay. All right. So the ship has been repaired so that we can go try to find the Earth Crystal. We eventually make our way to Crescent Island and immediately lose the ship in an earthquake. It seems to me like we are often getting ships or, or companions that will help us get somewhere and then immediately losing them. It's not unlike Final Fantasy III in that way, right? Where you lose your airships a lot. 
Yeah, it reminds me exactly of Final Fantasy III when you get an airship almost immediately, and you're like, wow, the world is my oyster, and the first thing you do is crash it. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so on Crescent Island, not the last or first Crescent Island we will find in a Final Fantasy game, we will find a black chocobo. And the black chocobo will let you fly just about anywhere in the world. There's also a couple of fire crystal shards here. Because of the explosion, they were launched all the way to Crescent Island. So with the black chocobo, you can cross mountains, go this way and that way, and you can find this little town in the middle of a forest. And the town's name is Lix. Sweet home. Lix is Bart's hometown, and this is where we get a little backstory on what he's like, or why he is the way he is. We see him as a young man, or as a young boy, really. There's uh, a couple memory flashbacks. One uh, is of him getting stuck on a roof in town, which explains why he's afraid of heights, which the others give him no end of shit for. But the more poignant ones are the ones about his father always leaving, always going out to check on things, trying to uh, keep an eye on something. And I guess we can say it now, it's because he's keeping an eye on the crystals to make sure that X-Death remains sealed. We also see his mother slowly growing sick, keeping it from his father so that he won't worry, and Bart has to watch his mother slowly die. Yeah, so all that bright, colorful, whimsy adventure, this game isn't quite as serious as the others. It's still not, but important to remember that that doesn't mean it isn't without these kinds of moments. And this reminds me a lot of the relationship between Titus and his father in Final Fantasy X. Interesting, Uh, yeah. A lack of understanding, but, uh, well, in that game, an actual hatred of his own father over a similar situation right he's never around he's not taking care of mom but he is trying to do this bigger thing that maybe as a young man you can't understand and now that mantle has been passed down to you and and it's too late for you to go back and appreciate your father as a child or understand any of those things but now you understand because you're in the middle of your own journey with your own group of four friends trying to save the world. And, yeah, it's pretty powerful stuff. I think that might be our running theme for Final Fantasy V, that it is that, that it has all these parallels. Earlier in the previous episode, we were paralleling it to the whimsical adventures of Little Miss Sunshine and the Princess Bride. And I think that's a, a good lens through which to try to understand Final Fantasy V, but finding all these parallels it has to past and future games, I think, is as important. Seeing the parallels it has to seven and to ten, as you just pointed out, I think makes the game more interesting than a lot of people give it credit for. Absolutely. So after going to Bart's hometown of Lix, we are able to get back to the library, and we can learn from Sid and Mid that 
King Alexander Highwind Tycoon has been seen. He is flying toward the ruins of a town called Gone. In order to get to this town, we've got to go through the desert first. We've got to fight this big sandworm thing and then sort of use it as a bridge because the sands are always shifting here. So it's really hard to get through. And then we get to the, the ruined town of Gone. And there you do find King Tycoon. Ferris has a moment here where she calls out to him and she calls him Papa. She recognizes him and she really admits that, yes, the, she and Lena are sisters and that Tycoon is her father and they, they really want to find him. So you can go all over this little town seeing him here and there and he flies away and he eventually basically lures them to this little trap door and they fall through it and they, they're, they're going through these underground ruins and they find a warp point that moves them to another set of underground ruins where they find Sid and Mid with the fire-powered ship <laughs> because, you know, it was lost in that earthquake. And these two inventors have realized that this, that, that the ruins they're in, are an old castle kind of thing called the Catapult that was built by the ancients a long time ago because that's when the ancients lived. And they're able to find an airship and they fix it all up and give it to the party who are now absolutely certain that what they got to do is they got to save the last crystal. So a lot going on there, and I wanted to make note of a couple of things, one of which, really the main one, is this siblings who didn't know they were siblings, family who didn't know they were family as a part of your main party or the main cast of a Final Fantasy game. This is something that we'll actually see quite a bit throughout the series I get again to get back to this kind of central theme of what is Final Fantasy V I feel like it's done a bit less subtly here but then to our other point about it I feel like that's kind of on purpose I feel like from the very first time Lena brings it up and Ferris just goes nah we as the player are meant to understand that eh, probably yeah and so that the reveal is actually more important to the character than it is to us. It's more important as a development in their relationship than it is an aha moment for the audience. And just since we've been doing the parallels thing, remember that in Final Fantasy III, all of the characters find out a little bit into the story that they were actually related. In Final Fantasy VI, we have somebody who is someone else's father and daughter uh, that right. that isn't revealed until much deeper into the story and yes final fantasy 8 fans love it or hate it that twist in that story has a huge amount of historical ties to the rest of the series that there are characters who are related to each other but didn't know it who've been working with each other each time how well that is or isn't executed you know, can depend on each person's opinion, but we've got another version of it here. So our light warriors return to Gone just to see the Ronka ruins, which is this big underground castle we were just in, rise into the air thanks to an ancient amplification machine, so not Sid's amplification machine, utilizing the power of the Earth Crystal. Sid and Mid have to do some work on the airship to get our airship able to fly into the this floating castle thing 
uh, a theme we will see again later and, and, and earlier in Final Fantasy with floating islands and floating continents and whatnot. I was going to say, they like to make stuff float. Yeah, absolutely. They are able to make their way onto these ruins that are now that is now a flying battleship of sorts. They fight uh, a, a winged bird lizard thing that is actually the guardian of the crystal. Uh, and once you kill it, Tycoon, uh, King Tycoon, who is possessed, attacks. Barts and Goliath are ready to fight him, but Ferris and Lena absolutely refuse. They stand in their way, not a chance, you're not fighting Papa. Another thing that's a, a twist on that trope that I was talking about before, the family being involved, uh, fighting your own family, also pretty common. Right. Because it's heartbreaking. We talked about Final Fantasy IV, it's probably one of the most heartbreaking ones of all time, with Edge's parents, who actually end the battle, as we mentioned, by killing themselves rather than killing your party. So, yeah, yeah Final Fantasy knows how to use family to twist the knife or make what would otherwise be just a battle in a video game, something far deeper and more emotional than that. Before we can decide whether or not we're actually going to fight the king, another meteorite hits this planet, and Kryle, a blonde-headed little mage girl, bursts into the room. She blasts Tycoon with a spell to break him of his possession. Seeing her completely cures Goliath of his amnesia. He knows who she is, he knows who he is, he knows everything he knew before. King Tycoon reunites with his daughters. For a moment, everything's great. And then, and then, the Earth Crystal shatters. And X-Death is freed of his prism and he appears before the party and he says, Ha! You thought you could stop me. Not only am I going to mess up you guys, I'm going to go back to my other world and I'm going to take things down there. I'm going to I'm gonna rule two worlds in one. And he, he leaves, like, just because he's a super magical warlock dude and can do that. So, we've talked before, in fact, we did an entire episode about adaptations and reimaginings and talked at the end of that about some stuff we'd really like to see. One of the reasons I think on that a lot is because of scenes like this, that I love pixel art as much as the next guy and, and 2D Super Nintendo stuff, and it doesn't ruin the experience for me by any means. But the thought of seeing this scene, either in full animation style, we've mentioned Castlevania style, uh, the, the studios that have done Avatar, The Last Airbender, those kinds of things, or in it would take a lot of CG probably or just a huge budget to do it in live action, whatever. I want to see this scene where Kryle comes in on the meteor, blows everything up, X-Death shows up. Like, this is super epic and just mind-blowing stuff. And if you were to render it in, in a modern way, it would blow people's minds. Just what even is happening here? It'd be like nothing you've ever seen before. And I love this moment because so much cool... Like, this is such a quintessential Final Fantasy thing to do. Just a huge dump of crazy new twists to the plot. And a character shows up. Uh, two of them show up. And stuff is exploding. And then it's just gone. And it's just done. And you're standing there in the aftermath of it. Reminds me a lot of in Final Fantasy thirteen when the heroes get their focus. And they get this crazy 
image dream of all of this stuff that's happening and then they're deposited in another part of the planet and it's and you're just left in the aftermath of insanity and i love it i love it love it love it final fantasy is cool man so before he left x death set uh set some monsters to attack the party the party's fighting them and once again a character sacrifices themselves to save us this time it is king tycoon he draws the uh, the attacking crystals on himself, and, and once their power is inert, we get more superpowers. So again, big tragedy. King Tycoon is dead. His daughters are, are mourning him. But at the same time, superpowers. It's awful, right? Like, because you don't want... Like, if you care at all, if you, can, if you can have any sort of empathy with pixelated characters, you don't want the king of tycoon who is this this father figure literally a father to two of the characters you don't want him to die but at the same time you want your superpowers <laughs> uh the hand of fate there it is he could have stopped playing the game and he'd still be alive today that's not at all how that works no <laughs> <laughs> uh, except for in shadow of the colossus Right, I was going to say you did that in a game, so what are you talking about? <laughs> so with the Earth Crystal now destroyed, we flee the ruined floating castle as it crashes, and Goliath tells everybody the full story about he and the other Dawn Warriors, who we'll be introduced to here in a bit, fought X-Death from the other world. They, they brought him to this world. They sealed him here with the crystals, and the other Dawn Warriors knew... That something was going on, but they weren't. They, that's why at the beginning of the game, he's coming to this world in a meteorite because he's trying to stop them. Far too late. He declares that he and his granddaughter will go back to their world to fight X Death, and he absolutely forbids his new friends to follow because this will be the last of the warping magic. They won't be able to get back home. So Bart's, Lena, and Ferris agree. They say goodbye to. Goliath and Kryle, and there's this nice little scene where those two go off, and and in its pixelated art, you see these sparkling sparkles rise up into the atmosphere and disappear. And then we've got these three guys here looking at each other, Bart's Lena and Ferris, saying, "Okay, you know we did our part. We're done now, right?" I guess the adventure's over. And then they say, "You know what? That doesn't feel good." I think what we really need to do is also go to that other world. And the, the music comes in, and it's this big heroic moment where we decide, yeah, yeah, we're going to help take care of this. So and they... Oh, wait, it's you. <laughs> wait, no, di- different music. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. What do you need, or who do you talk to when you need to warp to another world, but the warping magic is gone? Sid. You talk to Sid, and in this case, Mid. They need to go around to the various meteorites to collect adamantite, and the adamantite helps to activate the war point. They all go around and say goodbye to the people they... Uh, they don't go around, they just sort of like... they from Before jumping into the warp point, they're all standing around this pit where the warp magic is, and Bart says, you know, from afar, says goodbye to Boko, and Lena says goodbye to the people she knew at the castle, and Ferris says goodbye to her pirate buddies. And then they all jump into the magic, and they are immediately warped to that other world.
And if you didn't drop a little bit of a tear when Bart said goodbye to Boko, then I don't know what's wrong with you. (laughs) (laughs) I love the relationship that I think I'm letting some future things inform as well that I've been playing World of Final Fantasy while reviewing this. And Bart's and Boko are just the cutest couple in the whole game. (laughs) Titus and Yuna are nice. Squall and Renoa are great. Give me Bart's and Boko every day. And Boko's not in a lot of this game. He's you, you do see him again later. I think we skipped over this bit because he was injured at one point. We left him with the pirates. You can go back and find him, and he's he's got a new buddy and uh, a, a chocobo buddy, or maybe a chocobo girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, he's more like Luna Freya in that way. More of a huge presence on the game. Not really as much screen time. That's right. 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 That's right. I compared Boko and Luna Freya. We're doing this. <laughs> Do you, do you want to continue to delve into that particular analysis, or should we move on? I'm pretty sure that's about as deep as it runs. <laughs> Our three heroes get to this other world. They're on this island, and the first thing that happens is they are captured by these monsters, I think called abductors, which abduct them and take them to Castle Exteth. Well, if they didn't, they'd have to be called something else. <laughs> Kidnappers. It's the kidnapper monsters. Our scene shifts. We're no longer with those three. We are with uh, Goliath and Kryli. And they are preparing to assault Castle Exdeath. I think this is the first time in the franchise's history that you completely leave what are perceived, I suppose, to be your main characters, or the main character even, and you're just a different party somewhere else. I think that might be right, yeah, because we stay with Cecil the whole time in 4. We never He never leaves the party. Right. Other people come and go, but you've always got Cecil, and then in obviously three, the first three games. Four. Yeah. Yeah. And then in 2, you've got those three the whole time. Yeah, I think you're right. So this is a narrative step forward as well for the franchise, recognizing that, hey, at times, in order to tell the story that we want to tell, we're going to have to leave... Bart's behind for a moment and this is actually a good time to bring up something I wanted to mention I've noticed as we've discussed the games for example even when you were going through Mystic Quest while the main character is named Benjamin he's such a blank slate that you often use the phrase you because really it's you the player are doing this you go to this place you go and do this you fight the boss and you win but here Bart's is doing those things and Lena And now the way we really know that it's not just... I used to have this problem when I would play these games as a kid and people would refer to Cloud as you. Isn't that you? Aren't you that guy? I was like, well, no, that's Cloud. And sometimes I'm Tifa and sometimes I'm Barrett, but I'm not just one thing. It's not that kind of game. And I think this is just our first iteration of that and something that I really love about the series, something I think helps to set it apart. So they're preparing this big assault, and then X-Death shows Golov that, hey, I got your buddies, Bards, Lena, and Ferris. They're my hostages. So Golov calls off the attack. He borrows Kryli's Windrake, because there are Windrakes in this world too, and flies in like under the radar. And you have only Golov fighting through Castle X-Death. There's this cool part where Golov gets to take on a recurring Final Fantasy villain all on his lonesome.
Gilgamesh, dude. Gollum fights Gilgamesh. Our first appearance. We're not going to do a character study right now on Gilgamesh. We've got the next hundred episodes to choose from. <laughs> but we will say that, yeah, this is a character that will continue to show up throughout the series. He is as intertwined from this moment forward as almost anything else in Final Fantasy games. He's not quite on the level of Chocobo, Moogle, Crystal, but he's maybe on the next rung down from that. His battle music, which at some point we're going to spend an absurd amount of time talking about, has been interpreted and reinterpreted just inside the games more than 12 times. Probably more than that. Those are just the ones that I could count. And again, we'll talk about that when we get to the music, but that's just a symbol of... And part of that is because he's this, as we'll find out, kind of interdimensional traveler, which gives you an excuse to have him show up kind of whenever you want him to, and for him to have all kinds of different personalities from the incredibly menacing to the, in this game, and in most traditional interpretations of him, kind of goofy and weird and crazy, maybe out of his mind, um, red-clad, kind of loosely samurai-looking alien general warrior. Have I done a good job of explaining Gilgamesh? Is there a way to do a good job of explaining? <laughs> and, and obviously then... Uh, for those of you who, who don't know this, though, I think this is one of those things from history that most people just do. Uh, the name comes from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is considered to be, right, the oldest uh, known story that was written down or that we've discovered. Uh, I, I think believe. so, yeah. Might want to do some research to confirm that, but yeah, it's, it's certainly one of the oldest stories that we know. And his friend from those stories, which I did read in high school, in uh, uh -huh. Kidu, is often represented in Final Fantasy, and his nemesis, Poonbaba, or Unbaba, there, there's a couple of different ways to pronounce it, shows up uh, as well. So speaking of his battle music, as soon as Golov defeats Gilgamesh, he is able to free his friends, and they escape across a big frickin' bridge. This is the first big bridge. This is the first battle on the big bridge. Uh, our characters are sprinting away from Castle X Death across this bridge. They're fighting monsters, fighting monsters. They There's a second confrontation with Gilgamesh near the end of the big bridge. And they're running like heck because they know that X Death has these towers set up around his castle that when he activates them will create a force field. So they want to get out of the range of the force field before X-Death turns it on. Well, they don't quite make it, and the barrier comes into being, and it hurls the Warriors of Light to a far distant continent. It actually reminds me, now that I'm thinking about it, of the barrier King Regis has set up uh, around Insomnia. It's just this oh, big barrier that, uh, that enemies can't get through. Our heroes 
are thrown to this far distant continent. It's called uh, Glossiana. Bartz apologizes because he feels like he screwed up the assault. Goloff waves it off in his usual Goloff way. He's, he's fairly certain his army would not have been able to take on X-Death anyway, and he knows they would have been wiped out if they were on the bridge when the barrier was activated. They find their way to a Mughal village, and, and they meet the Mughals, and the Mughals are, are very kind, and one of the Mughals knows Kryli. And this is where we learn that Kryli is a psionicist. She's a telepath, and she can communicate telepathically with the Mughals. And so this buddy of hers is able to tell her, hey, your, your papa and your friends are here. And so Kryli gets on her injured Windrake, because the same Windrake that Goloff took used to uh, get into Castle X-Death, uh, and, and flies all the way out to that continent to pick them up. She takes them back to Castle Ball, and here is where we find out that Goliath is King Goliath Holm Baldesian. A crotchety old man who's been goofing around with you this entire time. He's just king of an entire place and just forgotten about it. Well, and he, he has at this point remembered because he got all his memories back when Kryli showed up. He just neglected to tell his friends. Right. Because <laughs> he's, he acts kind of embarrassed that he's the king. And he doesn't want them to treat him any, any differently, so they just start giving him shit right away. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, we won't. So we learn that the Windrake is dying because of the long flight and already being injured. Lena, of course, knowing about Windrake, says, well, what about Dragongrass? Because she had that moment early in the game where she walked through poison flowers to get the Dragongrass to save her own Windrake. But here in this world, Dragongrass is rare. They got to find the town of Quelb and they got to go through this dangerous dungeon. So, okay, you know, this guy just, this dragon just saved our life. We're not going to let it die. So they go to the town of Quelb. Quelb is the town of werewolves. And their leader is an old werewolf named Kelger. And he is suspicious of these guys, even though Kelger knows Goliath. So he demands that Bartz prove himself in a fight. Which is like totally a dude thing to do. It's like, I, I, you have to prove yourself to me. Come on, let's punch each other. <laughs> All right, fine. So Bartz, so the, the, the werewolf is really fast. This Kelger dude is fast. He's a dawn warrior. He's going to kick Bartz's butt. But Bartz knows this move taught to him by his father, who we learn is named Dorgon. <laughs> Sounds like a bad way to say dragon. <laughs> and he is able to use this maneuver to stun the werewolf Kelger, and Kelger recognizes the move as being the move that Dorgon knew. This is when we learn that Kelger and Goliath and Bartz's father Dorgon were all members of this group called the Dawn Warriors. And the Dawn Warriors were the ones who chased X-Death to this other world and trapped him there, and that's why Dorgon, Bartz's father, was always gone. Dorgon decided to stay behind. When all the other Dawn Warriors went back to this world, to, to this second world, Dorgon said, no, I'm going to stay behind and make sure nothing bad happens. And then he fell in love with a woman on this planet, and uh, they had a son named Bartz. Several parallels. Final Fantasy III was the first time that our Warriors of Light were counteracted by Warriors of Dawn or Warriors of Darkness. So we've got that going on again here in Final Fantasy 
four. The main character, Cecil's father, plays a, a major role in the events that take place before the game and kind of the central conflict of the story and passes that down to his son after being an alien in this one. So technically still, yeah, a different world uh, and falling in love with a woman from our planet that we've been on for most of the game to create a, a son of both worlds. So same thing here. We have Warriors of Dawn and Darkness in later games as well. It looks like in 14, in 9, I'm sure there are other interpretations you could probably find to suggest that, you know, to get a little creative and, and suggest that there are even more. But and then one of the things that I've learned very recently from the phenomenal work done by the people over at Final Fantasy Union is the way this ties into the entire Warriors of Light mythos that oftentimes the prophecy of the four young warriors is handed down by a group of four older warriors and that actually starts more here uh, and we'll get into more and more of why that's true when we get into some later events in this game but there's almost a direct parallel between this and what happens in final fantasy 15 where the four main characters are going on a pilgrimage that the main character in that one noctis's father and his four friends also went on their adventures and, and journeys before and now have to fulfill the ultimate promise of. So again, it's the parallels to this game and the rest of the franchise that are some of its strongest thematic moments. Absolutely. So you get through this Drakenville area. There's lots of undead here. There aren't a lot of wind drakes in this world because I think the idea is that because there's only dragon grass in this one place and it's really hard to get to, it's become one of the uh, differences between this world and the other that there aren't a lot of wind drakes here. You get the dragon grass, you feed it to the dragon, save the dragon. Kryle, who's been bedridden because she's got this massive headache, presumably from talking to talking telepathically to a Moogle across half the world, receives another telepathic message, this time from the sage Guido. So the Light Warriors decide that they need to go visit the sage Guido. But as soon as they get to this, this little island in the middle of nowhere, as soon as you set foot on it, there's another earthquake, and it, it sinks into the sea. So they all get back on the Windrake, and then they see a fleet of ships preparing to attack one of those barrier towers, those, one of those big towers around the castle X-Death that, that set up the barrier. And here we meet King Zizat, also known as Zizat the Swordsman, the fourth warrior of dawn. Galif and Zizat are friends. They are just, they give each other as much of a hard time as our characters do. There's a lot of puns. There's a lot of uh, sort of poking at each other. And, they, and our heroes decide, okay, we will join Zizat because he is preparing to, with his fleet of submarines, destroy one of these barrier towers. We use a submarine to get into the tower. Uh, we climb all the way to the top of the tower to destroy the antenna. King Zizat of Sergate, the, the great swordsman, goes down to the generator room because you gotta like do these things at the same time. Well Zizat becomes trapped in the generator room and they're using a, a, a whisper weed like we did in Final Fantasy IV for Edward to be able to talk to the party when they went to the magnetic cave. He's like, no, no, it's fine. Don't worry about me, kids. So they, they go up to the tower, they fight whatever monster they gotta fight, they destroy it, and King Zizat is killed down in the generator room doing his part. So... 
Dorgon is dead. Now King Zizat is dead. That's two Dawn Warriors down. Yeah, a lot of sacrificing going on in this game, too. Like in Final Fantasy IV. And uh, for the sacrificing, uh, Final Fantasy trope, there's another one. Just heroic sacrifice. So the barrier falls. Our party escapes. And using the submarine, they go talk to Sage Guido. This is where Bartz has one of his dorky Bartz moments because we're expecting to see a, a human being or some kind of humanoid being. Instead, we find a turtle, and Bartz decides to poke it. Like, he literally pokes it. And then the turtle <laughs> kicks his butt, and turns out Guido is this ancient turtle. He tells them that they've got to go to the Forest of Moor to stop X-Death from destroying the crystals of this planet. So we get to the Forest of Moor, and we think we're trying to stop X-Death, but X-Death confuses us. He makes it so that we fight these crystal monsters. Turns out those were the guardians of the crystals, and we end up destroying the guardians. So X-Death is able to arrive, take control of the crystal's magic. Kryli arrives again, like in the nick of time, to save everyone's butt. She's good at that. But X-Death is more powerful than her. So yeah. our four heroes are being paralyzed by the, the power of the crystals. And Kryli shows up, and she's going to take down X-Death, but no, he's more powerful, and he, he gets a hold of Kryli with his magic. And looks like Kryli is about to be the next sacrifice. But Goloth rises up in spite of the magic of the crystal and forces his way through this sort of beam of, of magic of some kind. You know, it's, it's, it's holding everybody else in place, but he is able to stand up and he pushes his way towards X-Death. And it's just like pure strength of will. He comes up on on X-Death and faces him down. It's one of those uh, story battles, so it's just Goliath and X-Death, and no matter how hard X-Death hits Goliath, Goliath doesn't go down, and you can just keep pounding on this dude. And so X-Death has to flee. He he turns tail and runs, but not before taking down Goliath. So here we are in the Forest of Moor. We're in this giant tree, the Guardian Tree, which I may have forgotten to mention earlier. And we've just destroyed the Crystal's Guardians, and Goliath is dying. So before he dies, he is able to take his power that he has gained, all his superpowers, and pass them on to his granddaughter, Kryli. And our, our heroes try hard to save him. It doesn't work. In fact, with not our very first technically our second after Tella, but an, a very early character death and one that honestly I think is executed much better especially because in 4 there's a lot of sacrificing and coming back and I was always expecting Tella to come back and he just never did this always felt in the moment much more final if you will <laughs> but one of the things that they do is they try to give him a phoenix down and it's one of the things that people who are a bit more cynical or like to joke about the series whenever a character dies in any of the games is just use a phoenix down. And, of course, most people are well enough researched and, and understand that getting knocked out in battle is not the same thing as being killed. But they do it. This is a th in, in this very early 
attempt uh, at telling the story of a, of a main character dying, which, like I said, I think is very successfully executed, they do what most people would immediately think to, is try the curative items that you have been using in-game to save him, and it doesn't work. And again, this is another parallel to you know, future games and past games, a, a, a tradition of main characters dying. And I also think you could get a little cynical and say that from a gameplay mechanic perspective, they did something pretty clever here by just allowing you to essentially continue the progress you were making in this game on Gallif and just pass it over to his granddaughter. That's oftentimes one of the big complaints that people have about Eris, spoilers, I guess, uh, is that you know you put all this time in a video game building up a character to make them more powerful in battle and then when they die in the storyline it kind of feels like all of that work was for nothing you just don't have their abilities or you know you lose their equipment you know people are sure there. sure but in this that's instance, why i'm upset about Aerith dying is yeah right uh, uh but in this instance they do allow you to keep all the progress you've made from a video game playing standpoint they get to have their cake and eat it too by having a, a truly emotional moment in the story but not having it mess up what you were doing in the video game which can be tough to do and since they're magical beings from another world where th they get their powers from these crystals and it's by far the not the craziest thing that's happened in the last hour or so of this game <laughs> it's like yeah, right, you can believe right. it as well yeah for all i mean we mentioned early on that sometimes things happen in this game just because they happen like we had no idea about the guardian tree and its power to transfer superpowers before and we're just hearing about it now so there was no setup if this were a a story in a creative writing class everybody would be critiquing well you really need to set up the power of the guardian tree before you have this big moment on the other hand, because this game has been doing that the whole time, I didn't feel like it was poorly done. Even if we want to critique the depth of the characters and the sort of just roll with it of the narrative thematically, this moment is big because now we've got three-fourths of our Dawn Warriors dead and we've got a whole group of, as you were saying, four young Carry the Torch Light Warriors. Exactly right. The, these are the true four warriors of light, and this moment needs to happen in order for that mantle to truly be passed on. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. Join us next time when we merge two worlds, discover legendary weapons, and enter the interdimensional rift.